Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to Be Real. It's your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast here to wrap up and commemorate the end of a truly terrible year in life, but a pretty decent year at the movies. My name is Chance Solemn Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Noah, do you agree with that statement? Was it a pretty decent year for film? No. What? Oh, really bad. Well, there were like some good movies out there, but like, <laughs> okay, I had tr- like when you go into just like the movies that weren't good this year, and like some real comical choices that were made to like no avail by some major studios. Um, what are you talking think, about? Like Justice League? Oh, I'm 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 digging deeper than that, baby. I'm talking like Baywatch. You know, option. Well, Baywatch is on one of my lists. Um, and optioning the underlying pro- uh, intellectual property for uh, the Emoji Movie. Mm. What kind of uh, what kind of board meeting did that look like? <laughs> you have to wonder. You do. Well, these are the questions we'll be raising uh, in today's episode. We've got some we've got some lists coming at you for the end of the show. Uh, some creative rankings about the year of 2017 in movies. But before that, we're going to get into two movies that we kind of let slip uh, by the wayside in the year-end uh, fervor. Noah, you went to two films this past week, yeah? I did. Um, yeah, I, th- I thought we would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, Blade Runner 2049 because Chance has such a, uh, a penchant for one Ridley Scott so, uh, and you also went nuts for Arrival, didn't you? Sure, I love that movie. And then I also saw uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, uh, being a Martin McDonough fan and just wanting to see that movie, Francis McDormand, all the good stuff. We're going to do some uh, normal size reviews of, uh, of those two movies and then get into some uh, year-end listing. Let's start with Blade Runner 2049. When was the last time you saw the original Blade Runner? I watched it uh, specifically for comparison purposes to this one, so also this fall. It's been a while since I've seen the original Blade Runner, and I did not rewatch it uh, before seeing this film. Uh, maybe I should have, but I also feel like movies should exist in a way that you don't need to watch two hours of something else in order to appreciate nearly three hours of a second thing. <laughs> Yeah, leave that for TV. Right. This is why we do a movie podcast. Um, but so I, yeah, yeah, it's a, so, it's a sequel to the 1982 original, uh, one of Ridley Scott's very first movies, uh, came, which came on the heels of Alien, and it was uh, Harrison Ford in his absolute, uh, you know, the hottest hot streak of all time, I think. Right. Uh, between Star Wars and Raiders and this. Um, yeah, this new one's... Uh, Ryan Gosling plays our uh, replicant retirer, and uh, you know why don't actually why don't you synopsize? I because it's much fresher for you. 
Sure. Well, I mean, you already, that's most of it. So Ryan Gosling essentially plays the same role as uh, Harrison Ford did in the original, but this time it's no real question if uh, our protagonist is a replicant or a human. They make it pretty clear that he's a uh, replicant and some pretty interesting world building showing that like people hate the replicants. Right. Yeah. And they like write like horrible slurs about them. Mm-hmm. Meat job. What was it? Skin jockey. S- skin jockey. Skin job. Yeah. 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 Or something. Anyway. Um, so he's tracking down some stuff and he has this scene uh, with what's his name from guardians of the galaxy. Dave Bautista. Where he has to like retire him, and Dave Bautista, like in his last breath, is like, "You don't believe because you've never seen a miracle." Right. And I'm like sitting in a theater in New York City, and like you can hear the street noise basically in this theater, along <laughs> with like the reverberation from like the trailers from a uh, Murder on the Orient Express in the next theater, <laughs> and people were like, "What?" <laughs> What did he say? Oh, my God. But I made it out. It was fine. Um, Not quite the temple of a cinematic experience I bet Denis was imagining when he made this movie. No, certainly not. And then after he retires Dave Bautista and hears this line about this miracle happening, he then discovers, uh, like, this coffin of this woman and these bones. And then it seems like the lady might have had a child or might have been a replicant or something. And then they figure out that, like, yeah, she probably did have a child. Maybe two children. Maybe they're both dead. Maybe they're both alive. Maybe one of them's dead. Maybe Rick Deckard has something to do with this. And this that's Harrison Ford's character. And then we're just, like, shot into this world of Ryan Gosling figuring out... Is there like a a baby that like maybe half human, half replicant? Mm-hmm. I feel like that's there... not too much of a spoiler to give away. The world is built on a wall that separates kind. Tell either side there's no wall. You bought a war. You're a cop. I had your job once. I was good at it. This movie is gorgeously made, I think. It's the, in terms of the universe, Denis has kind of polished up the uh, moldy noir of the original into kind of like giant monolithic lines that are uh, really, I think that they're most beautiful in that stunning, like Las Vegas sequence. Right. You know, you know from the trailer that Ryan Gosling does in fact go and find Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, and he happens to be in Las Vegas. Of course, he is. Of course, where else would he be? Shot in Harrison's Ford, Harrison Ford's actual apartment with some red <laughs> dust. <laughs> it's right. Um, so it's beautiful to look at, and it's. What was the experience like for you of being in a movie that is like, I don't know, I'm, I'm projecting here, but like mesmerizing, lulling, very, very long. How did you deal with that? I wasn't, it didn't feel super long to me and it didn't feel that sort of, because you had told me going in that it was like not a lot of speaking and I guess that's true, but it doesn't feel like it. 
There's a lot mm-hmm. of like really good shots of like people going places. Yeah. You know, and like little car things flying into buildings. The like, detective uh, story element of, is good on that kind of like transit stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. And there's a lot of that, and that probably gives the movie some length. Um, but then there's that also that sort of interesting idea behind it that it's not sci-fi based on like where we're going. It's sci-fi based on the world of Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. And Blade Runner already sort of posits that it's an alternate world from ours. And that I thought was sort of a pretty interesting commitment to like, like there's big science for like Atari and like Pan Am. And it's like, right. those companies aren't like that big anymore. And I don't think they're going to get <laughs> yeah. so big that in 2049, they're going to be so big that they have like these like large abandoned looking futuristic buildings. Sure. So this doesn't posit to be our future, which I think is interesting because it sort of frees it up to do more things and less like, and then Donald Trump took power and then the robots and then the replicants and, you know, and it doesn't like, yeah, it doesn't need its like Terminator 2 like, and that was the day the artificial intelligence went online and everything changed. (laughs) Right. There's a real sense of like... I mean, it's it's certainly ominous and scary because the sure. world of the original is ominous and scary. But yeah, there is like a real uh, sense of the mundane with like right. K, right? And just like yes, this technology technology marches forward because of the Wallace Corporation and Jared Leto plays this blind prophet, which is absolutely my least favorite part of the whole film. Um, yeah, he plays his, Wallace. But, yeah, him in the yeah. movie, and then like his whole time like at the Wallace place was like. Super boring to me, especially when that like bald guy who's like just done being an extra in Mad Max Fury Road's like, you remember the blackout? The blackout changed everything. And it's like, okay, script. Uh (laughs) I see. I almost forgot you were there. I like this movie. I think in a lot of ways it's very good. Um I admire the fact that Denis Villeneuve has brought his sort of like, you know, the giant ship from Arrival aesthetic slowly land. Like every, every, like, oh, a beautiful egg is landing somewhere. <laughs> like that's kind of Denis Villeneuve's thing. Um, and I think it's cool. But I think maybe he has either misinterpreted or just kind of like construed in a different direction, like, what is interesting about this universe and like what is interesting about performances in this universe? I guess really right. kind of lacks the weirdness of the original. The other thing that I felt like it lacked from the original, um, if I'm remembering correctly, is this movie, it feels like there's no one on Earth. You know, it, for mm-hmm. an overpopulated world and like with so many wide shots, there's no like extras in this movie. That's a good point. There's no crowd shots, which is so bizarre considering, I mean, there's a couple of things where he's like on the street eating noodles or whatever, yeah. but even there it's like, there's six other people, yeah. you know, it's like, where's like the crowding that would clearly go on in a city that's so jam packed that it's just a maze now, mm-hmm. you that's know, and so big that people have had to leave earth. How do you think Ryan Gosling is? How do you think the performances are? It's sort of an interesting... He's got interesting levels on this one. Because mm-hmm. on the one hand, I feel like the movie told him at the... Be- like, like the, the script or something told him at the beginning, like, 
you're a robot. And then like 20 right. minutes in, they're like, well, not like a robot robot. <laughs> uh-huh. And then by the end, it's like, well, you're like human-ish. You're like, you have a human body, but you like, you were made. You weren't born. And right. that's right around the time that he's like in that, he's in Bubble Girl's house. Yeah. And he's just like, ah, <laughs> God damn it. Right. And that's such a weird I guess you can see it sort of bubbling up in him. It just reminded me of like a performance very similar to Half Nelson. You've seen that, right? Sure, yeah. Where he's just like chill and he's just doing drugs. And then Anthony Mackie's just like, who's going to raise her? You? And he's just like, I don't know. I don't know. And he like loses it. Yeah. So it's a very similar moment where like Gosling just like. You know, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's I think that the technological, the identity politics of these like androids and whatnot lead to interesting layers of the performance because it's like everyone who kind of these these uh, replicants have been like programmed not to feel very much. Right. But even down to the hologram evolutionary end of the chain, they kind of all want to be human and there's a real like with the k character specifically the gosling character it's just like boy if i turned out to be human like wouldn't that be great but you can kind of see like his programming's fighting against that thought anything else you want to shout out before we kind of turn here well i think with the harrison ford performance i was kind of like it, I mean, the set piece sort of distracts you from the fact that, like, Harrison Ford has decided he's not going to be an actor anymore, but still be in movies. Uh-huh. <laughs> but then I felt like the scene where Leto's got his, like, he's remade. Well, I don't want to spoil it. But when Leto has that big reveal of how he's going to, like, fuck with Rick Deckard. That's a terrible scene. You, you don't think it's a well-done scene? I ha- I just hated everything involved oh, I liked- Jared Leto. I liked that scene, and I thought Ford gave a pretty good performance there. Oh, okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and he's he's goes pia- he goes past his like very sort of standard like I want that man, give him to me. Yeah, like once a movie now he can muster that kind of like Kylo Ren is my son, even though I'm run through with his lightsaber. <laughs> right, I am. Yeah. Yeah, I'm running through. <laughs> Yeah, he does. He has one moment like that in this movie too, right? Um, before we get to rating Blade Runner twenty forty nine, let's talk about how we rate movies on the Be Real podcast. All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy, things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again, like watching The Departed or Jaws or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say, Love that. Bad bad is easy too, things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good Bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good Bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say... I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. 
Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I'm glad that it was faithful to the original, and it's gorgeous, and it's super well made. Um, it could have easily been, like, sci-fi Hollywood homicide in, the like, the wrong <laughs> hands. Yeah. And it wasn't. They cast the right people. And... Yeah, but it's still, it's a three-hour sci-fi epic that, like, I think it believes it's way smarter than it actually is. Right. So I think it might be good-bad. I'm right there with you. I think it's a good-bad. Um, it's it's interesting. I get a... I wrote about this when I, like, wrote a short review of it for our site, like, back in October, but, like, there's just, like, a creeping sense of, like, the mandatory epic here. You know, like, I, I felt like Denis Villeneuve in order to get this, like, beautiful passion project made, like, had to go in front of Warner Brothers and be like, okay, here's how it's like a Chris Nolan movie, and here's, like, the mystery about who's a who's parent to who. When, like, the original is just so... It's mesmerizing because actors run loose, and the movie is kind of, like... The movie is kind of glitchy, and I think somewhere in ironing out the glitches, he also kind of, like, ironed out some of the psychological like eccentricities of the original in favor of something that's like beautiful, but like pretty traditional by our like sci-fi opera standards, you know? Sure. Yeah. I think I would be interested to watch it again, just to kind of like try to figure out some of the, like the, what is happening here? Right. Who just blew up all those like trash people. Okay. (laughs) When you're in the theater though, it's easy to give a lot of credit to the sort of like, I kept thinking, like, this is, like, it's, like, a hot yoga type, like, cinema experience. Sure. You're just, like, deep in some kind of, like, infernal trance for, like, a lot of the movie. Yeah, I was into that, though. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, and speaking of uh, speaking of fires, uh, let's talk about three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, shall we? Oh, uh, that's a what, a... what a transition there, Chance. Thanks, buddy. Uh... Why don't you, again, you're fresh on this. Want to bring us in? Um, sure. So, starring Frances McDormand, uh, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri follows this woman's uh, quest to get justice for her murdered daughter. Her daughter has been raped, murdered, and burned um, near their house uh, in Ebbing, Missouri. And the case has grown a bit stale and no one has really put two and two together to figure out who killed this young girl. So her last act as this sort of salty, embittered woman who's also, I mean, she's salty even before the daughter dies, we see. Um, But her last act to sort of figure out what happened is to buy these three otherwise unused billboards near her house and on them, uh, the three of them sort of say what happened, say that there's been no arrests made, and then call out the police chief, played by Woody Harrelson by name, right? 
saying that what's what's going on? Like, what are you what are you doing about this? And it causes such an uproar in this little town that some crazy, sometimes logical shit happens with a variety of interesting characters who come and go as they please from the narrative whenever they're needed. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's kind of like a stranger comes to town story where the strangers are these billboards. Right. Um, yeah. And it's directed by Martin McDonough, who you'd know from uh, In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths. And what's his famous play? The Pillow Man? Yes. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's his third, his third movie. And uh, yeah, Francis McDormand plays Mildred Hayes. And Sam Rockwell plays like this hothead racist deputy who becomes very important. So, Mildred Hayes, why did you put up these billboards? My daughter Angela was murdered seven months ago. It seems to me the police department is too busy torturing black folks to solve actual crime. What the hell is this? Dixon, I'm in the middle of my goddamn Easter dinner. Sorry, kids. I know, Chief, but I think we got kind of a problem. You could watch this movie and just appreciate the Francis McDormand performance. You know, it's a, it's a tour de force. Um... Just, like, the way she, like, looks at people and the way she... Frances McDormand is just in a, in one of our, like, best actors. Like, there's no right. doubt about it. And so to give her... and But she's seldom given a whole movie like this, you know. she's She gets ten minutes in a... Or the lot... You know, she got Fargo. But mostly right, she but gets that was ten, years ago. That was 20 years ago, yeah. She gets ten minutes in Cohen movies and ten minutes in Almost Famous. And, yeah, she's, like, a character actor who... Thankfully, Martin McDonough has been like, you know, you're my coverall headband wearing uh, spit in your eye gal for this part. Right. And whereas like Ryan Gosling had his like, I'm whispering, I'm whispering, I'm screaming performance. Frances McDormand has so many like good layers to this one. Like she's a legitimately. That's the, the interesting thing. Like as a film goer, you're watching this movie thinking like, oh, this woman's horrible. And then you think, no, she's like a good person. And then you go like, no, she's actually horrible. And then you realize there is no answer. Like this person who can be very tender. Like there's this scene where, oh, well, Chance, we, you, you and I have to talk about uh, the movies that we see that about with the powerful female leads that uh, end with the, the climax with an animatronic or a uh, digital animal. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the Queen and Wild and now uh, three billboards. Yeah, no, I forgot about the Queen. Yep. Yeah, I was thinking, huh, what a what a wild moment. Yeah, there's this mo- the moment where she's like talking to this deer, but it's the deer's done in shitty CGI. Right. Um, but it's like very tender. And there's also this moment too, which I hope it doesn't give too much away when a character like coughs up blood on her and like going into the scene, she's very hostile to this person. And then the person goes, Oh, I didn't mean to do that. And she goes, honey, I know. Right. What Martin Martin McDonough can do with characters is fascinating. Like everyone on screen is fascinating. Mm -hmm. All the characters are fascinating. And I think if you keep, his lens sort of tight the way in Bruges you come up with like a miraculous thing and if you let it go too wide like seven psychopaths it's like okay we get it you know you've created seven bizarre personas and gotten all this talent attached but you like really didn't think about the plot of this movie And then this one is sort of a return to form, I would say, where it's a lot of one in one scenes or three people scenes but not too much 
crowd noise, which I think is for the best. Right. Yeah, the the supporting characters are both kind of like fascinating, but they are simple enough. John Hawks playing her husband and Caleb sure. Landry Jones playing the uh proprietor the manager of the advertising company that rents out the billboards. Uh and like Lucas Hedges, her son, like all those characters are very interesting, but they're not like P Dinks. P Dinks, yeah, but you never come to them, you know, there's never like a title card that drops in and it's just like you know, uh, Meyerowitz Chronicles style. And it's just right. like, time to hear about like what Red does. Yeah. Right. But th- And they have enough fun sort of, and of course, uh, Sam Rockwell, as the as you mentioned, and Woody Harrelson too. Yeah. Can I say that I think if we can just sort of chip at it this way, I think one of the weakest performances in the movie was Woody Harrelson's wife. Um portrayed by a little bit (laughs) who was like British and then American and then Australian because it was like the happy meeting of the two or something. Who was that? Abby Cornish. Abby Cornish. She was in that movie stop loss with like Channing Tatum and Joe go. Okay. And it was like about like people coming back from Iraq and having PTSD. It was 2012's, uh, Thank you for your service. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, you're right. No, that's not a good performance. And it's like distractingly bad. Yes, I would agree. You know, it's like the wife from uh, Amadeus or something. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and it's weirdly given. So, I, what I want to talk about, my big takeaway from this movie is that, like, it's kind of like a. I don't know. The greatest ambition and also the failure of the script is that, like, the movie all of a sudden. Like a train coming into like one of those like rotating stations that sends it out, out on like a different track. Right. Is this thing that I won't spoil, but it happens with, with Chief Willoughby. Like for a moment, it's just like Chief Willoughby is actually the fulcrum of the entire ebbing universe. And he's going to write people a series of letters that will change their views on the world and change their facts on the, uh, the murder case and like shift everything. And f- I found myself being like, one, only Martin McDonough should try to do this. And two, maybe even he shouldn't have tried to do this. Right. What's well, the weird thing about it? Is it like it's it's Cohen Brothers E in its like choices. You know, like the thing with the with the cops and then like ultimately the climax of the movie and like how violent it sort of becomes is totally insane and like very Cohen Brothers-esque. But unlike the Coen brothers, didn't you feel like this movie, there's like, when they're in the bar at the end and Sam Rockwell's like overhearing those two guys having that conversation, I got hit with this sort of gut punch of like, uh oh, Martin McDonough doesn't know how to finish this movie, does he? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, yeah. Because he's like, well, this is how I could easily wrap it up, but I like know it's him, so it's like obviously a red herring. Right. So this movie like has a bit of an ending problem, I would say. It does. I mean, that scene is very key to sort of redeeming, to some extent, the Sam Rockwell character, or introducing the possibility of redemption for him. Uh, do you? I mean, do we want to talk about the the problematic nature of this movie that people have discussed? I think rightfully. Yeah, tell me. Well, it's just that like for uh, Alison Wilmore from BuzzFeed like wrote this really good piece. I think putting it in good terms, which is that this movie um, 
puts the the anger and rage and need for justice of of one group that being women uh in the spotlight in a great way while completely cheapening and sacrificing that need for another group which is like the black people of this fictional sure. town because like the whole thing is like this chief this police department is like super racist and like it refers to them over and over again like brutalizing and profiling uh the black residents of this town and the area right um but there's only two black characters in the movie uh it's daryl Britt gibson who's one of the guys on you're the worst from the hip-hop trio and uh amanda warren who works at the shop with francis it's also the the black uh like federal agent at the end oh that's right lester from the wire excuse yeah. me yeah um and he's got more to do but like it's just kind of a movie that's just like to to push up to that quentin tarantino edge like it's very important that like these people that these like white people are racist so they seem like legitimately bad but like we don't have we don't have the time of day for these like side characters who just need to get together because they're black in the end see i found it to be a little bit more cynical than that in that it's sort of saying you know a lot of these white people are racist and there's a lot of violence being done to women here and nobody gets justice I almost like didn't see it as like well well at least we figured out who killed the like the white girl movie cuz ultimately it's not that movie. No, we don't know that. Yeah, you're right. And I just I almost feel like it is it's just a story of like second class citizens which is sort of I mean that's like the those are the people that we see on screen. And there really is no first-class citizen, like, in a town such as this. It's just the people with their very specific roles. But when you, like, take them out of, like, the narrative that they should have of walking down the street and, like, doing their thing, you know, they still, like, all live with their parents and are, like, lonely as sin. And, you know, nobody has it together. And people spend, like, weeks in jail and everyone's drunk. You know, it's... I don't know. I don't know that I agree with the fact that it minimizes one to sort of talk about the other. I think it's minimizing them both in a greater framework of why do we let people like this uh, be police officers for this long? Uh huh. Yeah, I don't know. I just think one is like a a tool, a signpost of the year we live in. And one is narr- and the other Francis is like very narratively explored. And then it's like, Oh, thank God. Amanda Warren like got out of jail on that bullshit pot beef from like two hours ago. She's been in j- She's been languishing in jail for two hours while we like explore the psyche of Mildred Hayes. Right. Yeah. The attention paid, but I think, I think it's a, I think it's a simple problem and a problem that movies have all the fucking time. Like most notably in like Detroit this summer, which is just like, it's a movie that, thinks wrongfully i think that like even like abusers psyches are more interesting than like black people's psyches yeah in terms of where they spend their time so i'll give you that all right um that said it's like i i think i wrote on the site it's i think it's a problematic good good like i think this is a pretty entertaining uh you know top flight banter like somewhere between that cohen and tarantino thing where it's just like it's pretty fucking sharp, but it's not like too kooky. Um, and I would absolutely watch again because I think that these you could do a really interesting character profile on everybody down the line. I think it's more of a bad good. Okay. 
I think it is an in, ultimately an interesting failure. I think the movie doesn't know how to end, like I said. I think the problematic nature that you bring up like sort of keeps it from being I think where it is tone deaf is like sort of entertaining in a sort of artifact kind of way. Um and then I just don't think that the all the characters on screen like are fleshed out enough to come to some of the moments they have by the end of the movie. You know, like it expects you to have like a big emotional moment with Peter Dinklage, which I don't think really works if you only see him playing pool like once 45 minutes earlier. And it expects you to have a big moment with um, the guy from You're the Worst in that like he offers to, you know, repair the damaged signs. But like, again, you only saw him like give lip to Sam Rockwell. Like there's no real... The coincidences are too clean for a movie that thinks itself like pretty edgy. And for that, I think it's just a, I think it's an interesting failure. Hmm. You think it's better than Seven Psychopaths? Oh, a hundred percent. I don't think I finished Seven Psychopaths. I found that movie pretty unwatchable. But you love In Bruges. In Bruges, I think is one of the best movies uh, in that sort of crime genre noir space. Right, right. Well, should we wrap up the year a little bit? Let's talk about it. Let's talk about what a year it was. So Where we've were got, you when? What's that? Where were you when uh, The Dark Tower came out? <laughs> uh, I was probably like at my kitchen table copy editing something. <laughs> sure. And that's so did you want to talk about... It made no money. Right. Did you want to talk about your favorite characters from the year, Chance? Yeah, so that was kind of the list that I pitched for us today is that we would count down our top... We might do some awards season something in a couple months. So I thought like top five characters would be an interesting list to make that could like wind up being pretty different lists. Sure. Because um, I was thinking, I was trying to make this list and I was kind of like, well, gosh, favorite characters not the same as performance. It's like a real combination of like actor and like what the script wants to do with this person. So should we count mm-hmm. down? Do you have five? I do have five. Okay. Should you want to give uh, your fifth first or should I give mine? Go ahead. My number five is uh, Rod from the TSA in Get Out. Damn it. That was my, <laughs> that was my number five, too. Are you serious? Yeah. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, well, I mean, like, obviously, like, a memorable, really funny um, performance in a movie that, like, is being hailed as a comedy at the Golden Globes, but it's like not, it's kind of like uncomfortable funny most of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that's Lil Rel Howry. My favorite thing about that performance is like, not only is it the comedic relief of the movie, but like also he's kind of the, kind of the thematic touchstone of the movie in a way. Sure. Where he warns Chris like, don't let your guard down when you like. He's the go conscience. Out, when yeah, you go out movie. to those suburbs and like, like everything else in that brilliant Jordan Peele script, you can kind of read it and just be like, "Here's a guy who's like a public servant using the like tools that he has at his disposal to like help his friend." Look, what I'm about to tell you gonna sound crazy. You ready? Sorry. Try me. I believe they've been abducting black people, brainwashing them 
Make it a work for them as sex slaves and shit. Oh, sorry about the shit. That's great. Can I do my uh, my number four? Mm-hmm. Since we agreed on that. Yeah, that I think truly he's your just, number five as well? It's right on That's my list here. goofy as hell. All right, what's your number four? My number four is uh, Philip playing Denny, uh, portrayed by Josh <laughs> Hutcherson in The Disaster Artist. Uh-huh. I thought that character as a 26 year old playing a 16 year old and then really not understanding what he was getting into in his scene with um, Zac Efron doing Chris R. Yeah. And then his like sort of coming around into how bad the room is like at the actual screening, I think is pretty hilarious. That's a good choice. Yeah, you talked about that last week. Yeah. Uh, my number four is from a movie I don't think you saw. Did you see The Killing of the Sacred Deer? I haven't seen that yet. Of uh, Sacred Deer. Uh, Yorgos Lanthimos movie, uh, who did The Lobster, which I loved and you did not. Um, but there's this performance by uh, Barry Keoghan, who is also the boy on the boat in Dunkirk. Not the one who hits his head, but the one who's kind of looking after Killian Murphy. Oh, uh, with the I'm one t- with like the like the little eyes. Yes, the yes, the very memorable little eyes. Um, he plays this part in this movie that is the ultimate. One of my favorite categories of performance is the like fucking with the helpless protagonist performance, and no one is like better fucked with than Colin Farrell. And all of a sudden, here comes this like nineteen-year-old Irish kid who is like playing this. There's like a scene where he like eats spaghetti and meatballs where he's like, I'm sorry, Nicole Kidman, I can't help you from this monkey's paw situation you've gotten yourself into. There's a scene where he bites himself and says to Colin Farrell, see, it's a metaphor. Good afternoon, you must be Martin. That's right. You must be Anna. That's right. I brought you some little gifts. That's very kind of you. It's a key ring with a musical note on it for Kim. Because I know she likes music. What a charming boy. How long have you known him? What's your number three? Number three is Danny Meyerowitz from the da- from the Meyerowitz stories, new and collected, uh, portrayed by Adam Sandler. You'll always be my superstar. What'd you love about that performance? I just or thought he was character. like such a, for being such a schmuck, he was such a good dad. Oh you yeah. Know? And he had like those sweet songs that like him and his daughter, and he's got such a sweet relationship with his daughter and like yeah. not judging her for like being in these like weird nudie movies. And, you know, I just thought he was a cool dad and a good meaning sort of dad to look up to if he, you know, couldn't get anything in his, else in his life that good. That uh, genius girl scene where they play on the piano is such a touching, memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, my number three is uh, Oliver from Call Me By Your Name. I can't believe you changed it again. Oh, I changed it a little bit. Yeah, why? I just played it the way Buzzoni would have played it if he'd altered Liszt's version. And what is wrong with Bach, the way Bach would have played Bach's Bach version? never wrote it for the guitar. In fact, we're not even sure Bach wrote it. Forget I asked. 
it's like the it's the perfect army hammer role which is like an american kind of like out of his depth like being very american and as like this oliver character kind of wades into the affair with the timothy chalamet character the sense of him being both like kind of like the dominant person but also like well i'm i'm very polite and i don't let my like passion show uh, even as I'm in this, taking part in this sort of like illicit affair, uh, sure is a really, really interesting character. So that's great. Uh, my number two is Beverly Marsh from It, played by oh, Sophia yeah. Lillis, the girl, the token girl of their group of guys trying mm-hmm. to figure out what Pennywise the clown is up to. But I just wasn't something so fascinating about her performance especially as like as a child actor a but b like as a child actor like coming of age as a woman mm-hmm. is also in a horror premise is like a pretty difficult thing to ask of a young person like this and i was pretty impressed uh at the performance and b just like how warm and generous but also like feminine this character can be as she's sort of figuring out like what it means to like attract and tease and push away and stuff like that henry and his goons are over by the west entrance so you should be fine oh i wasn't everyone knows he's looking for you what's he listening to new kids on the block i don't even like them I was just... Wait, you're the new kid, right? Now I get it. There's nothing to get. I'm just messing with you. I thought about that performance a lot, actually, as I kind of soured on Stranger Things Season 2. Sure. I was just like, where's where's my Beverly in all this? Mm-hmm. In this like movie, or this TV series that's like stopping all these kids from having the genuine moments, which was like the reason we liked it from Season 1. Um... My number two is uh, Ladybird from Ladybird. Ladybird, is that your given name? Yeah. Why is it in quotes? I gave it to myself. It's given to me by me. Ladybird always says that she lives on the wrong side of the tracks, but I always thought that that was like a metaphor. But there are actual train tracks. When I was thinking of my favorite characters, like a, so many of them were supporting characters, right? Who were kind of like bouncing off and inflecting the more kind of you know, the rock at the center of the movie. But I think Christine, or in quotes, Ladybird, is just like, I can't stop thinking about that character. I've found myself recently like saying things like, oh, I'm not any good at that. That we know of. Yet. Like she's so, <laughs> her like optimism and her cynicism as she like tries on all these different hats and social modes. Um, yeah, that character's great. And Sir, the fact that Saoirse, we talked, we sang Saoirse Ronan's praises on our mini episode. That's my number two. Cool. What's your number one? My number one is Joy from Blade Runner 2049. The- I thought <laughs> there was something so, like, appealing about... That's your favorite character of the year? Yeah, I think so. I just thought, like, it's such a fascinating character because, like, you think she's just saying things that'll make him happy. But then there's that like bizarre scene where he's like sitting there and like looking at the wooden horse and he's like sort of putting it all together. And she's like, what if we just called you Joe? How would you feel about that? Joe. (laughs) And it's just sort of like, it's really does something interesting for the, like the girlfriend character 
because this one too is like clawing at the difference between fantasy and like a real sort of, he even gets upset at her. And I think that's fascinating. Like, why would you buy a product that like you can become furious at for just behaving the way it's programmed to behave, Mm -hmm. which is to make you feel better. Right. Where do you draw that line? And did she really love him? I love you. You don't have to say that. I know. Joy is warm and sensitive, funny, sexy, someone easy to talk to. She really shows love. They're coming after me. I'm coming with you. What's your number one? Speaking of sexy robots, my number one for the year... You blow and I'll do the fingering. It's a tie for first place between David and Walter in Alien Covenant. Of course it is. (laughs) (laughs) That was an easy number one. My favorite performance of the year is Michael Fassbender playing two roles, doing it like a bow finger in the Alien universe. Right. Why are you on a colonization mission, Walter? Because they are a dying species, grasping for resurrection. They don't deserve to start again, and I'm not going to let them. Yet, they created us. Even the monkeys stood upright at some point. I've expressed this ad nauseum on our show and in our writing. I think that the, like, comedy, the, like, the madman comedy of, uh of David like mumbling about literature as these like soaking wet, like ripped to pieces, like space voyagers are like, do you think we can stay here for the night? And he's going, I'm like Crusoe on his island. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the funniest. Those flute, the way that that movie, which is a deeply flawed movie digresses into Fassbender on Fassbender is one of my favorite things this year. So that's great. So, you also took it upon yourself to create other categories. Well, I just felt like after looking through nearly 250 titles that were released this past year, like some themes emerged both in like my taste for movies and also how Hollywood creates movies and the pitfalls and the shortcomings and things like that and all the spaces in between. So I made several additional lists uh, that I'd like to talk to you about and get your feedback on and maybe some things come to mind. I understand if you haven't, you know, done the the research that that I have. There's no <laughs> You didn't tell me you were coming up with other categories. So No, no, I'm and I'm saying that I understand that you don't have to be as uh, well thought out here as you. As me. I uh-huh. mean the listener doesn't know. That's right. Well, now they do. Noah came up with this idea, and I will now contribute as best I can. Lay it on us. Yeah. So after going through nearly 250 movies released in 2017, um, these are the five movies that I are, am least likely to see in the immediate future. Number five, Wonder. That movie about the kid with the weird face. Yep. I think the whole movie is about you trying not to call him the kid with the weird face. (laughs) Number two is the remake of Jumanji. Right. Number three is the sequel to Daddy's Home. That's right. Yeah, we don't don't condone Mel Gibson being in movies, do we? No. Okay. Uh, Especially the sequel to Daddy's Home. That's right. Um, 
for, as I texted you the other day, Chance, uh, I have no interest in seeing The Greatest Showman. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, Hugh Jackman doing, like, The Great Danton rated G. Right. (laughs) The Great Danton, the musical. Yeah. (laughs) And number five, just because of how how like unbelievably good bad it looks uh detroit oh okay yeah i can tell you that uh the filmmaking is good but no you you ain't got to and then on the other side of that i when i was looking through um i made a list of five movies that i'm disappointed that i haven't seen yet Mm -hmm. and this sort of parenthetically does not include movies that were just released in like the last couple weeks in this oscar push okay um so one is logan lucky I have seen that. It is uh, a heck of a Soderberghian time. Yeah. Two, Call Me By Your Name. Gotta catch that one. Reading the book now. Uh, Three, American Made. Dude, American Made might be like my, if we did like an underrated top five, one of the best times I have had at the theater this year. That's great. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Uh, Four, Wind River. Also good. Yeah. And number five, just for kicks, uh, Geostorm. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite a kick, isn't it? And as I looked at those five movies, I was thinking, what five movies did I see this year that I would have rather not seen and used that time to see the the original five? Bring it on. And these are the movies I wish I could unsee in the year 2017. Um, number one, Kong Skull Island. Missed that. Uh, good. <laughs> okay. It's a horror. It's it's got such a great cast, but it's so it's such a misfire. Yeah. Of an like of it's like just a visual aesthetic. It's right. it's it's gross to look at. Nick White and I watched it and we were both just like No. I remember thinking when I heard Sam Jackson on the press tour for the movie tell an interviewer he wasn't sure he knew that Jordan Vogt Roberts knew what he was doing, that that was probably a bad sign. <laughs> Yeah. Number four? Uh, number four is The Circle. Oh, yeah. Definitely haven't seen that. Tom Hanks and uh, Emma... No, Emma Watson right. uh, in that book by... Uh, that best-selling book by... What's its name? Eggers. Dave Eggers. That's, like, working at Facebook or whatever. Can we do a 20-second digression on how Tom Hanks is in a secret cold streak and has been for some time? Yeah. Like, I think he hides it by, like, working with Steven Spielberg. But, like, right. the last time you saw Tom Hanks in a movie and you were like, this is good because of the acting that is Tom Hanks is doing right now. It's been a minute. It has been a minute. Certainly wasn't that Disney movie or, like, that, uh, what's the one where he's, like, that guy that goes to Abu Dhabi or something to show a hologram? Hologram for the King. Yeah, that's right. Another Dave Eggers book. Oh, really? Yeah, it is. Uh, having just seen the post, I can tell you that one of my big revelations from that movie is that Meryl Streep acts him off the screen. Wow. So, number three? Baywatch. Yeah, how was that? Um, it, it doesn't pass a lot of, like, political tests. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. Um, well, and it's it? just like the, the humor is just sort of... The Rock can do better. And for such a great cast, for Zac Efron and The Rock, they should have, like, had something a little bit better than, like, what they did. Yeah. Maybe they shouldn't have adapted a TV show that's like main thematic crux was breasts. Yeah. There are a lot of like breasts in it though. I I bet so. Um, 
didn't really care for John Wick Chapter 2. Did you not? I mean, I just didn't... I don't know. I, I, I mean, I just thought John, John Wick Chapter 2. It was not for me. Okay. And the worst fucking experience I had watching a motion picture you this You better talk about the dinner right now? Was the dinner. <laughs> I've, I've been i was even if you didn't bring it up i was gonna ask you for our retrospective like what upset you so much about that movie that no one saw it's just well i love the book the book's great and this was just such a misfire and like so many different like just just like cinematic like it doesn't make a lot of sense and i can deal with like camp and i can deal with like stupid things and like try to believe that they're like you know, bad, good or something. But this was neither entertaining nor well-made. The performances are all over the place. You never give the protagonist role. It was Steve Coogan. Steve Coogan has literally made a career out of not being the protagonist in things. Yeah. Who is Richard and Gere in it? Richard Gere's like the, his brother and Laura Linney's in it. And, um, what's her name from the town? Uh, Michelle Monaghan, Rebecca Hall. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah, baby gun. and it's awful. It's all I, I awful. It's on Netflix, and don't watch it, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so, as, as again, as I was clicking through these 250 movie titles, there were so many movies I'd forgotten that were even released. Yeah. And I emailed you some of these last week, um, and I there were there ten of them that I just had no. I like knew that they came out and just had totally dismissed them from my brain. Bring it on. Uh, number number 10 being King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Missed that. Sorry, the guy Charlie Ritchie, Hunnam. Charlie Hunnam, uh, King Arthur. Why do they keep making those King Arthur movies? Like, does anyone, nobody went to see the Antoine Fuqua one, did they, with Clive Owen? I don't believe so. You Why know, would they do another? And I, it made, especially bummed me out because that was right as Charlie Hunnam also released Lost City of Z. That James Gray movie, which is a very good movie, and it's very good Charlie Hunnam. And then he was just like, no, 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 what I really want to promote <laughs> is uh, King Arthur colon Game of Shadows. Right. Uh, number eight, uh, based on the international bestseller, uh, Tulip Fever. Is it, like a, is it Vikander? Yeah. Parlor drama or something? I don't know what it is. And she's married to Christoph Waltz. But like they want to get together because they're young and beautiful, and Never he's Christoph Waltz. <laughs> and then you have like Judy Dench and Zach Galifianakis. Uh, Why? I don't know. It looked kind of good. Cara Delevingne. So it's just Anna Karenina, basically. Right. Okay. Right. Um, totally forgot that the Fate of the Furious came out. I think that's the only Fast and Furious movie that I've missed to date. There is like a large. It's almost too big to be a cult. Of people around these movies who just think that they are the highest order of bad good entertainment being made today. But like I just don't have I have a lot of time for shit, but like I don't have the time for this. I, I've made the time historically. Um <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and Charlie's Theron is the uh is the antagonist of this film. Okay. Cypher. That's the you can't don't just steal villain names from the Matrix, please. Um, the other one was, and I only knew about this movie in passing because of listening to uh, a WTF with, um, with Dax Shepard, um, but Chips. Oh, yeah. 
California Highway Patrol remake of like a classic TV show. The same lesson as Baywatch. Like, do not make, do not remake seventies and eighties shows that like were not ever good. Triple uh, X Return of Xander Cage. <laughs> I feel like don't you kind of like Triple X? I go nuts for the original one. So why uh, you didn't even want to give this one a shot? But then I never saw like Triple X State of the Union where they swapped out Vin Diesel for Ice Cube. Okay. And um, yeah, I, I didn't manage to see Triple X Return of Xander Cage. The Train Spotting sequel. That's just a blind spot for me. I don't. I haven't seen the. You haven't seen the original? No. Oh wow, that's a that's a pretty seminal film. I feel like. And number four. His long-anticipated Austin music scene drama song, uh, Terrence Malick's Song to Song. <laughs> That's a great entry because I did actually forget that that existed. Right, I, as most people did because, like, it was filmed in, like, 2006 and, like, came out in 2017. Was it really? It wasn't 2006, but it was a long time ago. I feel like Terrence Malick's, re- like, recently, I think I'd had this experience with Night of Cups, too, where you, like, type it into Box Office Mojo and you're like... I didn't know a movie could make that little money. Right. Like, I didn't know a movie could make $180,000. Right. Um, number three, Fist Fight. Oh, the God. Charlie Ice Cube Day. and Charlie Day. Yeah. The, your, this list is heating up because I couldn't remember what that was for a second. For sure. Yeah, that was a classic, uh, like, February 1st release. Number two... <laughs> was an Al Pacino vehicle called Hangman? <laughs> wow. What, Where uh, the killer plays Hangman, like with the bodies or something, leading up to the death of someone close to Detective Al Pacino's character. This should be on a different list of like movies that have no right to be better than The Snowman, but probably are. Sure. Um, have and you, seen, ten, you haven't number, seen it, have you? I haven't yet. Good. Too scary. And the number one for me was the Emoji Movie. I remember being so outraged and then completely dismissing that from my mind. Yeah, there was other stuff to get outraged about this year. Yeah. And so tell me, Chance, if were there for me, there were like at least five, and I came up with five movies that I felt like the marketing of the movie was like, we want Noah to see this movie, and we are going to put this movie in front of him as much as physically possible. Okay, I'm loving these lists. What? Tell me. So number five is outside my apartment. There's a bus stop, and on the bus stop, there's a big poster, and for six months, the poster in the thing outside the bus stop was for 47 meters down. Six months? Yeah. <laughs> it was Tommy Wiseau marketing that movie? Unclear. But for three months before and three months after. Yeah. This, this Every day was this like stupid... C- I took a picture of it and sent it to you. This stupid CGI shark like eating... Uh, what's her name? Mandy Moore. Mandy Moore. We are super fans of shark movies, and I don't think either of us saw that, did we? I'm not going to see 47 meters down. Give me a break. All right. All right. What else? Two, uh, you've already mentioned it a couple times, but the snowman. Oh, my God. There were posters everywhere for that thing, and I just felt like it was in every movie that I saw in the theaters, and I was like, I was pretty pumped for it, because it's like regarded as a pretty good book in that sort of 
cop serial killer space. Mm -hmm. And then it was just, I mean, I didn't see it. And because you told me not to. The world did. I mean, that marketing is, that's really funny because like that marketing was memorably bad. But then the memification of that marketing has like, you know, out far outlived anything anyone has to say about the movie. Mr. Please. Um, Number three, sitting outside my office one day was an SUV that had like TV screens and like big speakers on it. And it was like hyping up the Tupac film, All Eyes with a Z on me. That's right. Which I then never saw anything else about and did not see. and went. (laughs) Yeah. So because I live in literary Brooklyn uh, and her first film was like kind of much talked up in these circles, uh, which was obvious child's, uh, I felt like Julian Robespierre's second film landline was really thrown at me in some both online Twittery kind of stuff. And it was like on the ad banners for a lot of like literary adjacent articles I was reading and stuff like that. Did you ever see it? And then I watched about 10 minutes of it. It's on Amazon prime. And I like couldn't get into it and, switched to the circle and then just gave up on films uh, in general. <laughs> this is the first time you've talked about films since then, I think. Yeah. Right. I feel like landline kind of had that tulip fever thing where like it was coming, it was coming, it was coming. And then it's just like, wait, where is this movie? I thought we were, I thought we had agreed this movie was, a- you ever get that feeling where like, I thought we agreed this movie was a thing, but then it was like, absolutely not there. So I think the most pervasively advertised movie in my direction was so upsetting because the movie trailer begins with Sir Anthony Hopkins giving this speech about like good and evil and right and wrong and like light and dark. And you like think there's like a cool sort of gladiator style historical like action movie coming at you. And what you realize very quickly in the trailer is that it is like what the seventh installment of the Transformers series, the last night with a K. The dark being described as merely the dark of the moon, baby. <laughs> oh God. Uh, yeah, that movie didn't make very much money either. So hopefully we can fucking be done with those. I hope. One Ten years hope. now of Transformers movies. That's bad. It's the, bad. Michael bad. Bay has been making Transformers movies since before the current wave of Marvel Studios movies was a thing. Yeah. And isn't that bad? <laughs> sure. In a few ways. So not only do studios go back to relentlessly tired uh, film franchises for their next season slate, but they also look to seemingly unnecessary true life stories for inspiration. Uh-huh. So my top five, uh, unnecessary true life story film adaptation. Could I guess um, some of these? You please. Disaster artist. No. Oh, Molly's game. No. Uh, read your list. <laughs> uh, number five is, uh, stronger. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is the Boston bombing victim trying to get like the use of his legs back. Right. Number four is uh, Battle of the Sexes. Oh my God. Steve Carell, Emma Stone. That was with not tennis. A, not a good film. Three, The Zookeeper's Wife. 
<laughs> also it's, not a good film. I'm so <laughs> God, I haven't thought about the zookeeper's wife since March. Um number two, Megan Levy, that like lady Marine and her dog. Yeah, that Kate Mara grenade dog movie. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. Number this is a one good we list. number one we go back to tennis for Borg v. McEnroe. Did that come out? It's according to its IMDB profile. It is out? I don't know. Okay. It's a 2017 movie. And for my final category, yes. uh, it's top it's top six movies that uh, didn't quite understand until it was too late that we're living in the year 2017. Number six would be, after hearing your review of it and reading some other reviews, Suburbicon. Excellent. Yeah, there's no no worse ally out there than Matt Damon, as we've discovered also. Apparently, yeah. And the, <laughs> <laughs> the, I've always cautioned you about getting overly enthusiastic about Matt Damon. The cocktail of like Damon the flaky neoliberal and like Heslov the ambitious neoliberal <laughs> is like a pretty nasty cocktail. Uh, number five, Netflix original Bright. I don't think we're quite past uh, race relations as to make a fantasy series out of it. Right. To make cop and uh, cop and marginalized people fantasy stuff. Is Bright feels... out yet? Christmas or something, right? It's coming out soon, but it, I, I think it, it's got to be problematic. Another way in which like it doesn't understand 2017 is just like... On the on Christmas, families will gather round for Will Smith to be beamed into their homes with Joel Edgerton in an alien mask. <laughs> yeah. yeah. People are not going to watch that. Uh, number four is the uh, pedophilia revenge fantasy Book of Henry. Is that, that what that's mayor, about? May or may not have killed Colin Trevorrow's career. Bye. Bye, Colin Trevorrow. <laughs> I wish I could say it was fun, but it wasn't. Number three is the bizarre miracle of having to totally reshoot a major component of a movie and then release it three weeks later, (laughs) all the money in the world. I'm seeing that tomorrow to review it. I don't even know what the hell it is, but I know Kevin Spacey's not in it. Christopher Plummer definitely got like a courtesy Oscar for that one. Absolutely, yeah. The hero that the Academy needs right now. Um, Number two has nothing about the plot that's problematic. It just happens to be the current war uh, distributed by the Weinstein company that was like the front runner to be like Oscar movie. And then I guess it's being sold off now or it may never like come out in a huge way, but it like was at enough film festivals that technically it came out this year. And number one, I think far and above all other movies that didn't realize they were in the year 2017 was Louis C.K.'s I Love You, Daddy. Yep. A unique set of truly (laughs) awful circumstances. Well, it's both like a problematic script and plot, but it's also released by a problematic person in a not even that closely related way. Like it was sort of a movie about why we let Woody Allen get away with stuff. Yeah. But then it turned out, you know, of course, that Louis C.K. was masturbating on people without their consent. Yeah. So. What a, what a fucking thing. What a time to be a low budget black and white art film, you know. But yeah, a a pretty interesting and weird uh, year for movies. 
Yeah, um, and some really pretty unclear what's like going to be like the best picture. I don't know that I can say that I know what the front runner is. I think I would guess Dunkirk, but it seems like people are going to go nuts for the post, which I think is oh maybe it's the post. Pretty good, but it's not great. Okay. Um. Yeah, but I think there's some really good shit like uh, sitting at the top, like Lady Bird, Call Me by Your Name. Uh, I Tanya is really interesting. Um, sure. These there are some there are some quite good movies out there. So the Big Sick we was I feel like uh, hopefully some people come back and revisit the Big Sick now that it's on Amazon. That was a great movie. Yeah. Yeah. Get oh get out yeah. Yeah. Well, most of my lists were like degrading. That's true. Uh, hopefully we'll maybe so the plan folks is like maybe we'll hit you with a mini pod if we uh you know go to some movies over the holidays but uh you know consider this our official send-off for 2017 uh yeah it's been a really fun year we've had some like awesome guests on the show we've done some we've messed around we drafted some movies we uh we made some list categories we've we put out you know another 40 shows so i've loved every second of it my friend we've done it <laughs> like Carrie Elway's sawing off his leg and saw, we've done it. <laughs> Sick. Yeah. Wait, didn't a different a new Saw movie come out this year? How did that not That's get shouted true. out? <laughs> That's true. I haven't actually seen any of the Saw movies. Oh, me neither. I just know about that one clip because I love Carrie Elway's. <laughs> Fair enough. Because I well, also chance, do not know what year it is. Yeah. Let's continue to do this podcast in 2018 until we can't do it anymore for Let's whatever reason. You want to do it until we expire or else the internet makes people pay uh, like $20 to listen to podcasts? Yeah. Great. <laughs> do, you think we, do you think the repeal of net neutrality has us uh, in a position to make any money here? Do you think it's going to help us? <laughs> I think quite the fucking opposite. <laughs> Do you think our, our our dozen loyal fans will just just give up? I think uh, we should start like a new sort of like Patreon based service where it's like if you for five dollars a month we will call and talk movies with you. Personally. Right, right. We can yeah. just have conversations. Right. If you suggest coffee, we can just sit there and talk at you. Yes, we need to take the podcast back to what people used to just call friendship. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but until that day fine listeners you can find our show at berealpodcast.com uh apple podcast soundcloud stitcher wherever you get your shows for now we are there uh god and it's our distinct pleasure to be there i had so much fun talking movies with you this year i had so much fun oh it was tonight. great we've really got this uh podcast thing down to a well-oiled machine haven't we as the editor of the show i think the machine could always use a little more oil but yes i'm pretty happy with where we're at perfect <laughs> well pal uh i love you dearly happy hanukkah happy new year and uh yeah man merry christmas chance and uh happy new year and uh we'll talk to you soon okay my friend bye now <laughs>